Welcome everyone to another special episode of the Heat vs. The World podcast. As always, I'm your host, Joel Jacob. You can follow me on Twitter at JoelKJacob underscore. And with me always, I got some guests. First, I got Jake Wild. Say what's up to the people, Jake. Yo, yo, what's up, Heat Nation? Catch me out on Twitter at, at WildThoughts. E at the end of Wild, two S's at the end of Thoughts. And then following him, we got... Miami Flash PE. Say what's up to the people, Flash. What's up, everybody? Follow me on Twitter, Miami Flash PE. Follow me, I'll follow you right back. And then following him, we have our female correspondent, Miss Angelina Martell. Say what's up to the people, Angelina. What's going on, Heat vs. The World? It's Angelina Martell. You can follow me on Twitter, at Angie Martell, with two E's for all your latest Miami Heat updates. And then following her, we have a very special guest to the pod. You might have seen him in Heat games in the past with Eric Reed. He is definitely a Heat legend. He was an assistant coach for them, you know, and, you know, it's a pleasure to have him on the pod. Say what's up to Mr. Yeah Baby himself, Mr. Tony Fiorentino. Hey, everybody. How's it going? So without further ado, let's get started. So, one thing I want to ask you, uh, Mr. Fiorentino, um, so I know you're right now the coach for the Junior NBA League. What's that like? Yeah, the Junior Heat is a program that started a few years ago. Um, it, what it, what the, the premise is to any organization, basketball organization in South Florida, any basketball player, kid that wants to uh, uh, join, can join the program. We want to put uh, all of the basketball people under one umbrella, the Junior Heat. You get to go to clinics. Um, they get the tickets to be- to uh, Heat basketball games. Um, uh, th- th- there's all kinds of uh, amenities that come with it. Um, and we've had to put a lot of that on hold with the coronavirus. But we're going to start kicking in again. At the end of the month, the 30th, we're going to do a coaches clinic with coaches and parents on the 30th. And so there's a lot of things going on with it. We have our basketball camps over the summer that we had to uh, postpone last summer, but hopefully we'll be able to do it this summer. We had eight, we have eight full weeks when we're going at full tilt and we have a spring camp, uh, basketball camp and we have a winter basketball camp. So hopefully, uh, as we move forward and things start getting a little, uh, saner, we'll be able to uh, have all of those things again for the youth of South Florida. And uh, the other thing that we do is we've started an anti-bullying campaign where under normal conditions, we go into a couple of schools a week, usually middle schools, and we uh, discuss kindness and we discuss different ways that people can be good to each other rather than harmful. We know how sometimes kids can be cruel to each other and not really understand the ramifications of it. And so uh, all of that encompasses junior heat. Mm-hmm. And then I know um, Jake. I know you had a question you wanted to ask. Yeah. So, Coach, uh, I, I could ask you about a lot. You've been here for the the entirety of Heat history, um, but I think I want to I want to go back to square one at Ground Zero and ask you what it was like, kind of you know being an assistant coach on that very first inaugural Heat team in in '88 uh, and when working with Coach Rothstein. Yeah. The interesting thing for me was. Um, up till 1986, I was a high school coach in New York at Mount Vernon High School. 
And we were very, very, we had very good talent. We had one of the few high schools in the country, public schools. We've had nine guys play in the NBA from my high school. You know, Gus Williams probably being the best. Uh, your parents and grandparents will remember him. He played in the 70s, early 80s um, for Seattle. And, and um, yeah, here I am in 1986. Uh, we, we're trying to prepare to see how we can win a state championship, which we were always in the mix for. And then two years later, I'm with Coach Rothstein in in Miami, with a with six rookies, trying to figure out how to beat Michael Jordan, beat Larry Bird, beat Pat Riley, and then the Lakers who had won back to back championships. <laughs> that Detroit was on the verge of winning. Ch- so it was, uh, it was it was a humbling experience, but it was a lot of fun to come into the league with a new franchise, especially in Miami. And with a real good friend like Ron Rothstein. Yeah, I, I still, to this day, don't think he gets enough credit for the great job he did coaching the Heat. Imagine we started in 1988 with six rookies, as I mentioned. It's a man's league. It's almost impossible to win with uh, six rookies. And you know, we won 15, 18, and 24 games the three years that Coach Rothstein was the coach. But in, in no way does that reflect him and his coaching ability. You know, one of the best lines I ever heard when Ross, Coach Rothstein left was by Grant Long. And he said, they asked him, what do you, what, what's your comment about Coach Rothstein? And he said, you know, we lost a lot of games, but he never made us feel like losers. That's very difficult to do when you're losing so many games like that off three years, especially college guys who come into the league having had a lot of success in, in college and high school. So it was a great experience for me, and I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And then, Flash, what about you? you have any questions? Yeah, sure. Coach, you just talked about step one for your NBA career with, with the inaugural Heat team and such. Now, let's fast forward a couple of years. <clears throat> in comes Pat Riley. How did the dynamic of the Heat change when Pat Riley first came on board in the 90s? And what's it like to be in meetings and sharing a bench with an all-time great like him? Yeah, that's a great question. He was a breath of fresh air. You know, we had we were we were floundering, we were floundering, floundering a little bit. We were seven years of the Miami Heat, and you weren't sure what direction we were going. You know, we had made the playoffs um, two of the last three years, four through six. The seventh year was not a good year. Kevin Lockery got let go halfway through the year, um, and then Pat Riley. Uh, is not with the Knicks anymore. And Mickey Harrison hires Pat Riley to be the president and head coach. And Eric Reed were on, and I were on the, on the ship when he was introduced. And, and the first thing he talked about was that parade down Biscayne Boulevard. And so here you had, uh, you know, one of the, one of the great coaches of all time in any sport, a guy who's used to winning. He's your leader now. And if anybody knows what it takes to win a championship, it's Pat Riley. You know, I think he took the Lakers to nine championship, nine finals, one, one, uh, seven or eight finals, won four of them, and then took the, the Knicks to a, a finals and lost to the Houston Rockets. And here he is. He's our guy. And, don't, and lo and behold, a month later, he makes a trade for Alonzo Mourning. 
and now we've got, you know, we're, we're on our way. And then in the February of that first year, he trades for Tim Hardaway. This was the influence and the effect of Pat Riley. And being with him every day is like being with a genius. He says things in passing. One of the best um, advices I got, I, I asked a couple of people that worked with him because I wanted to be on his staff. And they said, look, the best thing you can do is keep a piece of paper, sheet of paper and, and a pen or a notebook and a pen with you at all times. Because he's going to say things in passing that are revelations. And you're not going to remember them. And so it was a great bit of advice. He would talk to the team sometimes and say things that were very relevant. Uh, he's got a way with words. Um, and and, and um, he had the stature where people would listen. I remember when we first started, some of my friends says to me, does he yell in practice? And I said, no, it's the opposite. He speaks very low. And you have to strain your ears to hear him because the air conditioning system is on. We were at LaSalle High School when we first started, when Pat Riley first came. We were at Palmetto for a year and then LaSalle High School. And at LaSalle, the air conditioning system was loud. And you had to strain your ears to hear Coach Riley speak. But you wanted to because you knew what he was saying was relevant. And so that he got his word uh, across and what he wanted, his meaning of it, without having to browbeat or do anything like that, that people just listened to him because he knew what he was talking about. It was just a great experience the four years I was on his staff. I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And Angelina, you? Yes. Um, so you just talked about how it was, what it was like working with Pat Riley and being an assistant under Pat Riley. So my question for you is, how do you think the culture shifted in a positive way, of course? How do you think the culture shifted and how did the organization change since we got Pat Riley? Like what impact has he made towards the organization in a positive way? That's a good question. What, 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 what's involved with that is it was a Mickey Harrison, Pat Riley venture. And, and, and they both thought the same way. You wanted to run a classy outfit. You wanted to work hard, hold players accountable. I remember after one of the practices, a, a reporter said to Coach Riley, did you just have a three-hour practice? And Coach Riley said to him, are you implying to me that I can't ask a professional athlete to give me a three-hour workday? And so he, he made demands of players and he held them accountable, both on and off the court. Instituted a, a weight training program. We had one before, but he took it to another level with Bill Ferran as a strength and conditioning coach. Um, and so uh, the, 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 the values, he, you know, he's a, he's a flashy guy and he's Hollywood and all that stuff. L.A. before and Miami, but he's really an old-fashioned, he's, he's a guy with old-fashioned ideas and old-fashioned um, uh, rules and he believes in, in the old-fashioned uh, things of being loyal and working hard be accountable to yourself and your teammates and that's where the, the heat culture really began to be honest so that that actually was what coach Rothstein did the first three years that we started in 1988 but here you have the president and head coach and the owner in uh, in unison doing this and it made a great impact on the team. And then, you know, acquiring Alonzo Mourning and Tim Hardaway. And then the second year, Coach Riley was here. We won 61 games. 
um, lost to the Bulls in the, in the Eastern Finals. Um, very, you know, uh, we were on our way with Pat Riley as the head man, knowing that there was light at the end of the tunnel, that there was a chance that one day we would have compete for a championship. And eventually it did happen, obviously. Look what he did. You look what we've accomplished since 2006, you know, being in the NBA Finals six times, winning it three times with his leadership. So that's part of what the uh, Heat culture is all about, to be accountable to yourself, your teammates, handle yourself with class off the court. Um, he, he taught about family values. They come first. Um, and and, and it, it, it reflects in the way Coach Spolster also coaches the team. So it's all encompassing. Mm-hmm. And then, um, Coach, I want to ask you a question real quick because you brought up the man himself, Alonso Mourning. Now, without a doubt, Alonso Mourning is one of the best big men we've ever had on the Heat. And, you know, it makes me think about the best big man on this Heat team right now in Bam Adebayo. So I want to I wanna ask you, um, when you look at Alonso Mourning and when you look at Bam, like, do you see specific comparisons between those two players? Well, there's no doubt. And, you know, um, uh, Zoe is one of Bam's mentors. Mm-hmm. You know, Zoe, uh, Alonzo Mourning goes to the practices. He works with players at times. He's there for consultation. And, what you know, he has a guy 6'10". looks like he still can play. Basketball Hall of Fame. And uh, championship ring. And here's a guy who, um, when he says something, you listen. And Bam is one of those players that absorbs everything. He's very bright, very smart. I heard early on from the coaches and from Alonzo Mourning that when they say something to him and they teach him something, it sticks. He gets it. And then he goes out and he does it. And you could see the development of Bam. When he first started played with the Heat, he had practically no offense at all. You would throw him a lob. You might rebound him, you know, tap it in. But he really had no, very little footwork, very little few moves around the basket. He was, you know, he was a, he was first year out of college. He only played one year of college, and look at how much he's developed, not only in his skills, but the the confidence that he's gotten um, to 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 not be afraid to try things. And um, I get to I got to talk to him once in a while before the COVID thing hit. One of the things I mentioned to him. Um, I did. I mentioned this to his mom one night about. I think what you really want to see, and what 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 the what the what the vision for him should be, is remember that game six against Boston in the bubble. That was the that was the ultimate game that he's played in his career, and that's the goal he should reach for in every game, is to have the impact in that game that he had to get the heat, the heat's up 3-2 in the series, and they, they beat Boston in game six, and he had the game of his life. Points, rebounds, block shots, steals, um, just his presence on the floor, running the offense through him, all of those various things. And he has that uh, attitude and that um, um, the responsibility type thing where it's, if he doesn't play well, he doesn't point fingers. Alonzo Mourning was the same way. He put it all on his own shoulders, and that's the way Bam plays. So you can see Zoe's influence on him in that respect. The both the, the Zoe was a warrior. I still don't think we would have won the championship in 2006 if he never came back after the uh, the the, uh, 
the diseased kidney that he had. And uh, the way he played off the bench in that series, especially game six when we won in Dallas, he played something like 13 minutes and he had eight points, six, uh, six rebounds, five block shots, four fouls. He wouldn't let any Dallas guy get near the basket. And he played with such ferocity that he inspired his team. We're not losing tonight. We are winning a championship tonight. And the two people that I was most happy for when we won the championship was Alonzo Mourning and Ron Rothstein. Because I thought those two guys really deserved it more than anybody after what they've meant to the franchise. So um, I, there's a lot of, uh, of Alonzo Mourning in uh, Bam Adebayo. Mm-hmm. Tony, I actually have a question on the topic of discussing players. Who is a player from either our current roster or a past roster that you wish you could have had the opportunity to coach? And why? Uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's that's an interesting question. Um, I, I was an assistant for 11 years. Um, and it, it, it's not like when we when I was a coach on Coach Riley's staff, it wasn't like one guy was assigned, one coach was assigned to this player or that player. We worked with everybody. Um and so um, I would have liked to have had the opportunity to work with Dwayne Wade a little bit. You know, that would have been fun. Uh, Coach Spolster is the one who gets a lot of credit for having developed Dwayne Wade's game because after the first year, Dwayne Wade was great going to the basket, but he didn't have a mid-range jump shot. And Coach Spolster worked with him after he came back from the Olympics in Greece in 2004 and worked on that with him. And ever since he developed that mid-range shot, he was in, been impossible to guard the rest of his career almost, you know, Dwayne Wade. Um, so he's one guy I, w- I w- would have had fun working with. Um, it's great working with individual players who want to work and want to be be there. And that's the, that was one of the great studies, one of the great strengths of Pat Riley. He can bring people in, interview them, and see whether they are just lip servicing him when he asks them questions about heat culture or if they really mean it. And, um, you know, it was a lot of fun when I was announcing. It was a lot of fun to go to the arena and watch Ray Allen's workout on game day. Every day, every game day around 3, 3.30, Ray Allen would go out there for about a half hour, 40 minutes, and do a routine. You'd never think he had a game that night. Sweating, going through a whole routine with the coaches. It would have been fun to work with him. Uh, I really enjoyed working with Glenn Rice, when he first first with the Heat, we're really good friends today because of it. And Keith Askins, people ask me, who's my favorite Heat player of all time? Now, you would imagine that Dwayne Wade would be in the mix, Chris Bosh, Alonzo Mourning, Zoe, I mean, uh, 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 LeBron, um, people like that. Uh, Glenn Rice, my favorite player of all time is Keith Askins. Because when he came into the league, he couldn't shoot. 6'8" was was very, very smart player, very uh, um, team-oriented, great defender, rebounder, could run, but he couldn't shoot. And we worked, he and I worked hours and hours and hours on getting his shot where it should be. And uh, in the nine years he played for the Heat, two of the nine years, if he was eligible with attempts, he would have been in the top 10 three-point shooting percentage. So I really enjoyed working with Keith, and he's my favorite guy of all time with the Heat. And so um, it's just been great to be associated with the Heat as a coach and as an announcer and now doing community work. Mm-hmm. 
And then Jake, do you have anything you want to ask? Yeah, definitely. So, Coach, um, obviously, you you coached in a very unique era. Um, some of the greats, guys like Shaq, guys like MJ, they were there in those in those '90s years, and obviously, tough to game plan against. So, so I guess specifically to MJ, how do you game plan against a guy like that? And then, <laughs> going off of that, do you think there's anyone in today's NBA that kind of even remotely compares to having a game plan against MJ? That's you know, that's interesting because. There's a great Michael Jordan story. Um, our second year in the league, we go to Chicago. It's around, um, I think it's around January. That second year, we only won 18 games. We got better. We were get, we were, we were losing by less. We were getting better on the road. We were winning some home games, but we only won 18 games. So we go to Chicago, and we're walking into the uh, Chicago Stadium there, and Ron Rothstein and I are walking in, and we see Michael Jordan coming in. Now, Ron Rothstein was the assistant coach for the Pistons when the Pistons started to make the move to win championships. So Ron Rothstein was given a lot of credit. In fact, it was Ron Rothstein that came up with the Jordan rules. He and uh, and uh, him and, uh, and Chuck Daly, they came up with the Jordan rules. And so uh, Michael knew who Ron Rothstein was. They say hello. And Ron says to Michael, look, Michael, you know, we don't have a lot of wins. Why don't you take it easy tonight? Michael says, you know what? I'm feeling under the weather. We'll see what happens. So the game goes on, and Michael's not dominating the game like he normally does. And with about five, six minutes left, we're up four or five points at Chicago. Right? And Michael's just going along with the game. All of a sudden, he goes bananas. He blocks Ronnie Cycli's shot. He, 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 he's uh, stealing uh, passes. He's going to the basket. He's dunking. And they win. So after the game, we're walking out of the arena. And don't you know, we run into Michael again, going in the back to get on the bus. And Ron says, Michael, you told me you were going to take it easy. Michael said, you better tell those young bucks to take it easy. You better tell them to keep quiet. Glenn Rice and Willie Burton started talking junk, started talking smack to Michael because he wasn't dominating the game. And that got him fired up. So he went off, won the game for Chicago. Now Coach Rothstein is upset with his two players, with Glenn and Willie Burton. I told the story at heat camp, and Glenn Rice was standing. They go, yep, that's what happened. <laughs> so they learned very early, don't don't uh, pull on Superman's cape. You let, 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 let sleeping dogs lie, so to speak. Um, uh, today, uh, Michael would be even more difficult to guard today because if you watch some of those old clips, the Pistons, especially, yeah, that is, uh, you know, guys look like they could have been arrested for some of the things they did back in the in the eighties with uh, the, the physical play. You know, they don't have the rules. They don't have the rules then that you have now. Guys, you know, getting tossed. Guys could be suspended. If Michael was playing today in his prime, uh, it'd be a, be unthinkable how many points he would score because there's no hand checking. You can't. Uh, you know, this was this was allowed on the guy's waist when he played, so you can lean on him a little bit. You know, he was so strong that it didn't really matter. But um, so the physical play is not allowed today, like it was back in the '80s when he was when he was you know making his ilk in the league. And so, um, who knows how many points he'd average today? Uh, it's almost like uh, the guy that seems almost unguardable 
today. Offensively, maybe two guys. Um, Kevin Durant and Steph Curry. Those two guys seem like they're unguardable. On certain nights, there's nothing you can do to guard them. You know, Durant is 6'9", 6'10", and he's got long arms like a seven-footer, and he's just so talented. And Curry, you saw some of the shots he made recently. I remember in a game, Eric Reed and I were announcing Chicago was playing uh, the Heat in, the, in our arena. And um, this is maybe, you know, four or five years ago. And we're up in the fourth quarter by three with about 40 seconds left. And Car- Steph Curry makes like a 30-footer to tie the game on the right side, right in front of where Eric and I broadcasted. And then he comes down again and makes the same shot again, and they win the game. You can't guard that. Uh, how do you how do you guard a guy 30 feet from the basket? You don't expect him to do that. So um, I think those two guys, to me, in today's basketball, are the two guys on given nights that are impossible to guard. And they can get almost any total they want offensively, and it reminds you a lot of Michael Jordan. LeBron's a different type player. LeBron's more of a triple-double type guy. That, you know, his best asset is passing the ball. He he'll tell you his favorite asset, his favorite skill is passing. And so he's not the, quote, uh, scorer per se like those two guys are, although he can't light it up when he wants to. Mm-hmm. And then, Flash, do you have a question? Yeah, sir. Uh, coach, what some people may not know about you is that you were also an assistant coach for the WNBA's former team, the Miami Soul. What was that experience like? It was great. It was it was a great three years. Coach Rothstein uh, was on Mike Fratello's staff in the late nineteen uh, nineties, and the Heat was awarded the WNBA franchise. We wanted a franchise, so it was up to Pat Riley to find a coach and a general manager. You could have two separate people or one person. So while that search was going on, Mike Fratello was let go from the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers, and one of his assistants was Ron Rothstein. So Coach Rothstein became available. So he showed interest in the job. And so Pat Riley hired Ron Rothstein to be the coach and general manager of the women's team. And he wanted me to be his first assistant. And so after 11 years in the NBA, four years on Coach Riley's staff, I switched over to the WNBA to be Coach Riley's assistant, Coach Rothstein's assistant. And in my opinion, um, there was I think there were 16 teams in the league at the time. I think there's less now. Um, coach Rothstein was the, the best general manager and coach in the league. And uh, what had happened was they, they hired a few NBA coaches, Richie Adubato, who coached uh, the, the New York team, the New York Liberty. He was an NBA head coach. Uh, Ron Rothstein, there might have been one other one. So they brought some NBA flavor into the WNBA. Jenny Busick was a great hire as an assistant coach. She's now the assistant coach of the Dallas Mavericks. I think she'll be a head coach in the NBA one day. She may be the first women head coach. Her, her or Becky Hammond, uh, who was with... Um, uh, San Antonio, one of those two will be the uh, uh, first woman head coach in the NBA. So we had a great staff. Um, 
and uh, the, 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 the thing I really enjoyed with it, uh, about that whole thing was that the women were so eager to learn. Uh, I'll give you an example. Ruth Riley was a senior. The year we came into the league and we had the draft, we had the fifth pick in the draft. And Ruth Riley was a senior at Notre Dame. And we sat around and watched her final game together. She was in the finals. Notre Dame was in the finals against Purdue. And don't you know, it comes down to two seconds left in the finals. Ruth Riley gets fouled. She goes to the foul line and buries both free throws. And Notre Dame wins his first women's basketball championship. She's the MVP, most outstanding player of the finals. And now we have the fifth pick in the draft, and we take Ruth Riley. And it was my job to work with the bigs, while Jenny Busick, who was a guard who played in the WNBA, she worked with the guards, the perimeter players. And so I got to work with Ruth Riley. And she came in and she wanted to just, you know, she could have come in, felt like she was in, uh, uh, in, uh, given that she was, you know, oh, I know I'm going to be good. Look, I just, I'm a, I was an MVP at Notre Dame and all that stuff and won a championship. Um, she didn't come in feeling she was entitled. She worked hard. She listened. She learned. And then uh, after three years that we had the team, it dissolved. She went on to play in Detroit and won two championships there. And a few years back, she was inducted into the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame in Knoxville, Tennessee. Coach Rothstein and I went and attended it. She asked us to go. That was a nice gesture on her part. And we really enjoyed seeing her inducted into that Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. So the, the experience was really a cool one, a really good one. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And then a question I wanted to ask you, Coach, um, and then as time progressed, um, you'd made uh, a switch in career choices. Uh, you decided to step away from coaching, being an assistant coach with the Heat and all that, to now being in broadcasting with Eric Reed. How was that transition like for you? Uh, it's interesting because when I was a high school coach, my last year, last couple of years, <clears throat> Uh, a guy named Ron Seisler in New York asked me if I would announce the uh, playoff games, postseason tournament at County Center in Westchester County. I'm from New York, Westchester County. And would I do the games on radio that my team, when my team wasn't playing? And I did. And I said, you know, I enjoy this. I, this is fun. And when I came to Miami, um, I... Uh, I, my goal was, I love the city, I love the organization, I love the weather, all that stuff. I wanted to stay here. I didn't want to be one of those NBA coaches that goes to four or five different teams in 10, 12 years. I didn't want to move around the country that way. And so my goal was, after I was an assistant coach, I don't know how long that was going to take once I got here, how long that would last, I wanted to get into announcing. And when, when uh, Ron Rothstein left, Kevin Lockery came in, hired his own staff, uh, I became the scouting coordinator. I was a guy who just went out and scouted for the, the opponent and everything. But I always kept my eye on the fact that I wanted to be Eric Reed's partner. And when Pat Riley came after seven years, in my 15-minute meeting with him, I told him my goal was to be on the TV with Eric. And so after four years of doing it with uh, the staff with him and then three years with the soul, we had that one-year hiatus where we were just kind of you know, the team went, as I mentioned, the team broke up. We, we were 
we were just kind of hanging around. I was always, I ran the heat camps since they, Pat Riley came. I was always a director of the Miami heat camps since Pat Riley came. They started when he came, the summer after he came. And so I've always directed those. And so um, it, 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 it opened up where I became the radio partner of Mike Inglis for a year. Mike Fratello was the play-by-play, uh, the uh, color announcer with Eric. And then Mike Fratello, the following year, in, right as the season started, got the head job when Yubi Brown stepped down with the Memphis Grizzlies. He recommended Mike Fratello. Fratello became the coach of Memphis. I moved into the TV slot. And Eric and I were partners for 15 years. And I really enjoyed it. You know, Eric is one of the best in the business. There's a reason why... He's in his 33rd year. He's been, the, he's been the heat announcer all 33 years. First three years, he was the color announcer. And then he became the play-by-play announcer when Sam Smith wasn't rehired after three years. He was the first guy. And he's been the announcer now for the heat for 33 years. And he and I were very good friends off the court. And I think it showed on the air the, the, the camaraderie and the, 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 the comfortable, comfortableness that we had with each other. Um, how we can joke about things, we could disagree about things, but it was all about entertaining the fans. My job as a color analyst, I felt, was to put the fan in the mind of the coach. Why did the, why did the coach? I always had to figure out why a coach did something on the floor. There's always a reason, and I, and I would, in my mind, figure it out and say, okay, here are the options that the coach has. Let's see what he does. Try to point out things ahead of time, maybe matchups that were good, not so good, and but do it in a in, a, in an honest way, you know, where we were, we were all, we were very, even though we wanted the Heat to win, and you could tell we were kind of homers, we were very honest and uh, fair with the opposing coach and opposing players. And we've gotten uh, over the years, we got a lot of compliments from uh, officials and opposing coaches because they all watch tape, they all hear what you're saying, and they appreciated how fair we were in our evaluation of what was going on. So it was a great 15 years. And then after doing it for 15 years with Eric, the Heat reassigned me to be the, uh, the ambassador, one of, uh, an ambassador with the Heat, where you're with the junior Heat, you're doing the, you continue to do the camps, do the clinics, and then uh, and I, I suggested let's start an anti-bullying campaign. I'm a former high school teacher. I know what that's like. And so that's about how the whole thing evolved. Seems like you've had a lot going for you when you career former high school teacher, TV broadcaster, former assistant coach. You've done it all, man, honestly. <laughs> well, you know, um, the high school program that we had in Mount Vernon, I, I went to Mount Vernon High School. So in my whole life, I've been, I've been in two situations where I worked at Mount Vernon High School. And except for the two years I was a coach at Iona College, that was very brief. Um, I've really been in two organizations my whole life. I went Mount Vernon High School, Mount Vernon, and uh, the Miami Heat. And I, I had a, I still have a good loyalty to Mount Vernon, you know. And I, as I mentioned to you, we were very successful. Um, you know, when I, when I was there, I was there eight years. We were able to win ninety percent of our games. We were very, very good. We had very good players who worked hard. Uh, I'm from Mount Vernon, so I know I was, a, you know, the local guy who made good all that stuff. And then coming to the Miami and being with Ron Rothstein, coming to Miami Heat, being with Ronnie to begin with. And then the way the whole thing's evolved, I've been very fortunate. You know, I got to work with the women, obviously, professional women. Um, I was a teacher for ninth and 10th grade for 15 years. 
13 years, uh, two years as a middle school, 13 as a high school teacher. And I coached baseball for six years and then basketball for eight, um, college coach for two, assistant college coach. And then the rest of the career here in Miami. And it's just been a great ride for me. And so now we're trying to get through to the kids. It's a, it's a, it's a great vehicle for us with Junior Heat, especially when we go in classrooms to speak to them about what's important with the heat culture and we can they they all of them know who Dwayne Wade was and or is and you know they know about the the, the 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 success of the heat and it's easy to get through to them. You've got a captive audience. We do that with the Miami Heat camp. We don't just stick to basketball. We teach life skills. I like giving out a uh, uh, a quote every day to the kids as long as well as we, we give them a a, a, a giveaway and we also give them some at times uh, instruction sheets, dribbling, passing, all that stuff. So it's all encompassing. And so we try to teach them that it's, you know, it's, it's more important to be a better person than it is to be a better basketball player. So I'm going back to my teaching days uh, at Mount Vernon High School. So it's all encompassing and it's a lot of fun. It's really gratifying. That's always good. Like, what's the word? Motivation to give to kids and like a good piece of advice and if you don't mind i have one more question about your sure. passing career so obviously before you got into that specific field you know you had people like jason jackson eric reed who have been in that position before did they give you any good pieces of advice or any good like tips on how to like better yourself in the crew the- i learned a lot i learned a lot from eric eric is the uh really a great professional you know for example one of the things that Eric taught me, I like I like to have fun and I like to joke and I like to, you know, be be of uh, uh, um, j- um, just just jovial with people. And if I would see people that I hadn't seen for a while, we joke a little bit. But what Eric taught me was you could do that, but also ask them questions that will help the broadcast. And so um, over the years, Eric and I, uh, one of the, we prided ourselves first on being the only announcers in the NBA that had been with the team since its inception. The whole 15 years that Eric and I announced, we were the only announcers in the league, 30 teams, that were without me a lot as a coach, Eric as an announcer. We could bring up anything that happened from year one to eight to 10 to 22 to 30, and we did it. We were there. And so we could give you firsthand information. You know, me as a coach telling you what happened in the locker room and things like that. Um... And then what we do is every game we we interview the, before every game every coach in the NBA, like tonight's game. Okay, they're doing it remote now. They're doing it on on, on the uh, uh, on the iPad and the computer. But in a normal situation, the coach does uh, a fifteen minute press conference before a game. The uh, uh, home coach goes first, then the opposing coach is second, and they they each have to do it. It's mandatory. And so Eric and I were one of the few announcing duos in the league that went to both. We want to hear our own guy, and then we wanted to go hear the other guy because, and Eric taught me that, you know, you ask him certain questions, you find out a little more about what's going on, you delve into things that maybe other people wouldn't, and then that would help you prepare even better. I mean, if you saw the two of us sitting at a game with all the information we had in front of us, we probably used maybe 15 or 20% of it. You never know what's going to come up in a game. And you're ready for anything. And so Eric taught me that. And the one thing that Jax is really good, I, I firmly believe without without uh, putting down anybody else, I think Jax is the best play by, uh, best uh, courtside announcer in the NBA. 
and, and his, his personality and the thing that he does best is he the way he can adjust to a situation. Things aren't always going to go the, the right way. If the mic, something happens to the mic, maybe something happens with a player. He's very good at ad-libbing. He's the best at ad-libbing. And so I had to learn a little bit about that. You know, you don't just stick to the script. You don't just stick to what you're trying to say. If something happens, you got to veer off. I do that in camp a lot. I got very comfortable doing that in camp with the kids. And then I had to get comfortable doing that on camera. And I got, and I did, I got that, I think, from Jack. So they were two really good guys to work with, to learn from. Two, two professionals and two of the best at what they do in the NBA. And I think the Heat fans are very fortunate to have those two guys on the air because you're not going to get more professional than those two. Yeah, absolutely. We've actually been fortunate enough to have done a previous podcast with Jason Jackson, and we're also doing an upcoming podcast with Eric Reed on Saturday. So this is all piecing together. So it's really cool to have those types of opportunities, especially with voices like you, Jax, Eric. So no, you'll enjoy Eric's on Saturday. He's got a treasure of of, uh, of memories and. Um, He's a little like Pat Riley in a sense. He's got a way with words. He's very good with words. You know, yeah, I heard he has and, a good reputation with stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, and you know what? What's interesting about Eric is he never predetermines what he's going to say in a situation. It just pops into his head, and that's oh. the best way to be. The spontaneous reaction is what the fans really like. Yeah, absolutely. And so he doesn't think ahead of time about rhyming this or doing that. What happens when the guy gets his uh, career? Uh, you know, when he gets the uh, when Udonis becomes the all-time leading rebounder in the history of the of the Heat, of the Heat, he doesn't predetermine any of that, and that's part of why he's so good at what he does. And so, um, you're really going to enjoy your your uh, interview with him on Saturday. I hope we do. Thank you for that. Sure, Coach. Coach that actually brought up a point that I was going to ask. So, obviously, color commentary is different than you know play by play. You're really the one kind of adding. I guess a little perspective to what's going on and helping, you know, maybe a casual fan understand something they might not have seen or, you know, something they might have missed in the game. How, how would you say that your, you know, the fact that you were involved in coaching for so many years, how would you say that helped you color, you know, with color commentating? And would you say that, you know, a lot of the stuff you said was also just off the cuff reactions or would you say that you had a lot of things maybe prepared to say? No, I think with me too, I did a lot of off the cuff. Um, I had a sheet in front of me with stats and all of that sort of stuff. And, you know, things that could back up. Uh, that I said that guy's a great shooter. I'd have a stat to back it up. Then maybe a story. But what, what I found very interesting when I first started doing it, the one thing that I showed on the air that got the most play, and I still see it today in Twitter, jump ball. I don't know if you recall, when I was doing the games, when there was a jump ball, we used the telestrator and what i would do is explain where the taps may go and you know when you when, when you're a coach and you're looking at the way they're lined up you're looking at where the tap's going to go most fans are just looking at jump ball i'm looking at the other eight players and i'm looking to see you know where where the tap could be and and then i would explain how it could occur because if you, if, for example, if you got a, you got Bams in a tap at half court, and he's got a, two teammates to, to his over his left shoulder, and he's got what what you try and do is create a gap. 
so that he can tap it into that gap. But you don't just create the gap. What you do is when the ball's thrown up, your teammate has to seal the, the, the opponent away from the gap, and the other teammate has to seal his opponent like they're boxing him out and, and keep that gap. And then, bam, tries to p- tap it there. So I, I used to telestrate that. And people thought I was Red Auerbach. <laughs> it was funny. It was, you know, because that's basketball 101 for a coach. That's not that complicated. But yet fans thought that was great to see. Okay, so I learned right away that uh, never assume that the fans are seeing what you're seeing. And so we try, I tried to take them to another level to show them what may happen, uh, how it will happen. You know, a guy goes to the basket. And um, a defender comes over to help and he passes it to an open teammate. And you're showing how he's creating that, that situation rather than just see the guy make the jump shot. How did that happen? Or Dwayne Wade's dribbling the ball down the left side of the floor and LeBron's running the right side of the floor. How does he get that lob? You know, was there a back screen? What happened? You know, so you try, it also goes back to when I was scouting for the NBA. When you scout, you don't look at the ball per se. You look at the other eight or nine players because you got to get the play. And so what a good analyst does and what a good coach does, a scout does, they're looking off the ball. They're not just looking. Most fans are watching the ball. And then they see a pass go up and the guy dunks it. They have no idea what happened. Meanwhile, my job would be as an announcer, as a color announcer, former coach, I'm going to explain how it was a back door where the guy, uh, a player faked going high and went back door, or there was a back screen. You know, you got to explain how that happened. And then you show the replay, and it verifies what you just said. Or maybe you changed something a little bit. Maybe, maybe you didn't get it exactly right. So to me, that was, that's what I really enjoyed, was taking the fan into the mind of the coach. And no one did it better than you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. It was fun. Nobody. It was fun. I miss it. I miss doing it. I miss working with Eric and Jax. Coach, talking about your broadcasting career, um, I just want to know, what's the origin of your iconic phrase, yeah, baby? You know, it just happened. It's I don't know where it came from. It was a reaction. And it's interesting with that phrase because I had to be careful. In, 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 in announcing and broadcasting, when there's a great play, the rule of thumb is you got to let the play-by-play announcer make the call, especially Eric, because he's very good at it. And because what they're doing is they're going to use it for posterity as well. And maybe the best thing that happened for me was one of the, the first year I was with Eric. I had maybe my best call. If you recall the playoffs where we were playing um, uh, New Orleans, game seven in Miami, tie game, uh, Van Gundy, Stan Van Gundy calls a timeout. Eric says to me, what do you think? I said, well, probably go to either Karan Butler or uh, Lamar Odom. Those were the two guys who were the scorers for the Heat. So what happens? We come out, and he gave the ball to Dwayne as a rookie. And Dwayne goes one-on-one on his man and shoots the jump shot from the foul line and wins the game. The Heat win game seven, and he move on in the playoffs to the second round. And Eric Reed gets all excited and makes his call. And then I chimed in after he did his call. And I said, Stan Van Gundy went to the rookie and he delivered. 
that was my iconic call. The first year I did it, it was the best call I ever had. <laughs> and I waited for it, and, I, and, and it, was, it was done right because Eric did it first. But there were times when I did do it over Eric. Yeah, baby. I think, I think the fans liked that because I was kind of saying what they were thinking and they were feeling and the emotion of the moment. And uh, it, it was, you know, I just watched it on the internet. They showed uh, the, the, the play where uh, we were in sec- second overtime against Chicago at home with about seven, eight, nine seconds left. And right before the inbound the ball, I said to Eric, I said on the air, I said, you know, this is usually the situation where Dwayne Wade gets a steal or a block shot. So they inbound the ball. The guy's dribbling the ball for Chicago. Dwayne comes from behind and steals it and makes that running one-hander from the top of the key a three-pointer to win the game. And that's when he jumped up on the uh, on, on, on the, uh, the podium there, on, on the uh, cushion in front of the Arisons and said, this is my house. <laughs> It was a great, great moment. It was a great, and, and Eric and I both got excited. You see Eric Reese standing up like this, you know, it was really cool. So it, there's been a lot of great moments and a lot of fun. So then, um, Coach, so now question I want to ask, uh, moving forward, about this Heat team we're seeing today. Um, you know, I know for a lot of Heat fans, you know, this season has felt somewhat frustrating. You know, obviously not everyone expected us to start off 18-18. and 18. Uh, What's your take about this season so far? Well, what I find interesting with home fans is that they don't realize, and they couldn't realize, that usually what happens to your team happens to every team in the NBA. Every team in the NBA, unless there's really an exception, you know, there are, there are exceptions. You know, the Bulls when they won 72 and the and uh, Golden State, I think, when they won 73. But the, other than that, there are times when the team doesn't play well. There are times when they lose games they should have won. Um, they just don't seem right. Uh, that happens to everybody. It happens to every team. And so I think the problem this team had, you don't want to make excuses. Mm-hmm. Part of the problem the team has is they miss Jimmy so much. You look at what their record is now. I think we I think we've won the last seven or eight in a row with Jimmy on the court. I think we're like seven or eight and zero in the last eight games with Jimmy. The one game that we lost in the last eight games, Jimmy didn't play, and so he's missed. He's missed a, a lot of games. He's missed one third of the games. My dogs agree. So you my dog. Um, uh, he's missed one third of the games, and we have a poor record when he doesn't play. And so it, what you're finding out about this team, what you're finding out about this team is that they have to, everything has to be working for them to play, to, to win. Everybody's got to be on the right page. They've got to be playing well. And they can beat anybody on a given night. And they can also lose to anybody. And so being 18 and 18 and being sixth in the NBA, given all the uh, injuries, coronavirus issues, Jimmy not being on the floor, and that's not using excuses. Those, 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 that's reality for this team. So now they have 36 games left. What's going to be their record in the 36 games? Now here tonight already they're starting the second half of the season, and Bam's not playing. Avery uh, is still out. Okay. Um, so we'll have to see what happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think sometimes we undermine, like, how injuries do play a major role. 
for teams, you know, especially with someone like Avery Bradley, who's out, who a lot of person, a lot of people have high hopes for that he could play some valuable minutes with this team. So with that being said, coach, um, how, um, where do you think this Heat team could finish at this year? Like what record if we could see the team healthy for the rest of the season? I know it doesn't seem possible, but if there was a chance that could happen. Well, the goal is interesting because last year, last season, uh, when it started, um, a year ago, October, before COVID, everybody had all the, quote, I call them pseudo-experts. All of the people around the country, when they evaluated the East, they had Toronto, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, and Boston in the top four spots. A lot of them had Miami. The highest they had Miami was possibly six. Some people had Miami struggling to make the playoffs. Okay, when Jimmy Butler's first came. The Heat's goal within was to have home court advantage in the first round. That means you've got to be one of the top four seeds. So the Heat had a different goal than what everybody else was projecting them to do. Because if you have the home court advantage in the first round, now you can get to the second round. You got a round under your belt. You got some young players that'll get that experience, and now you got a chance in round two, all right? And as it worked out, the Heat wound up the fifth seed, but they would have been the fourth seed if they had to be. It didn't matter in the bubble because there was no home court advantage, all right? This year, who knows what's going to happen? You don't know if there's going to be a bubble or not. You don't know how they're going to work this out in the playoffs. The Heat's goal again is to be in the top four seeds, and that's that's their goal. That's what they want. They want to have home court advantage in the first round. Now, if you can get to the third seed or the second seed, first seed, whatever. Coach Spolster, one of his favorite things is you never put a ceiling on anything. People ask him how good can Bam be. I don't know. We're not putting a ceiling on it. We're going to keep working with him and see if he can keep getting better. And once he gets really good, Dwayne Wade got really good, he still got better. You don't put a ceiling on it. It's the same thing with winning games and how far, how high you want to go in the playoffs. I think they have a great chance, a real good chance of being in the top four, get that home court advantage, and it could go higher because they can beat anybody in the East. Now, the Nets look like they're going to be formidable. Well, we'll see. You know, we'll see. On paper, they're very formidable. They look like maybe they're the team to beat in the East right now with, with the three players that they have. But you never know. you got to play the games. And so the Heat are going to come out every night now with second half of the season and play it more like um, they know that they're going to be running out of games. They don't want to wait and put it in the hands of somebody else about how high your your uh, your, your seed's going to be once the playoffs come. But I think they definitely have a shot at being in the top four and get that home court advantage. Mm-hmm. And then... Definitely. And Coach, um, so essentially... I think a lot. I think what you were saying earlier about this Heat team, and obviously, you know, not to make excuses, but we really have been bit pretty hard by the injury bug and with COVID. And I think one thing that's been really, you know, slept on, to be honest, in the media is how good of a job Spolster really is doing, having to adapt to all these different lineups and you know games where we have eight eight total, you know, active players. So, can you speak to kind of the job that Spo is doing and maybe some of the challenges he's facing with this, you know, crazy year? I'm glad you brought that up because one of my pet peeves over the years was the lack of recognition 
that Eric Spolstra was getting. People think it's easy, and I'm a little sensitive to it because I, I, I told you earlier, I coached at a high school that had a lot of talent. And people t- tend to get a little blinded by the coaching that's going on because we had a lot of good players. Well, where, where's it written that you can't have both? And that's what the Heat had has, has had. Um, people re- forget that Eric Spolster was a coach for two years before LeBron came. And in those two years, Pat Riley was gearing up for 2010 to be as far under the cap as he could be so that he has a chance to sign LeBron, Bosch, and Wade. Okay? Um, and Eric Spolster's teams won in the 40s, and they made the playoffs with one-year contracts, basically one-year contracts. That's very difficult to do in any pro sport, any of the pro sports, when you have an athlete in the last year of his contract, because very often what happens is he's getting uh, information from people saying, you know, you got to have a good year because you want to get a new contract. So they might get a little more individual in their stats, and they want to score a lot of points, they want to get more, a lot of rebounds, whatever it is, because they want to pad everything so that they can go in, their agent can go in and say, look what he did. Eric Spolster had a team of guys like that that were in the last year of their contract and they were unselfish. They were very good defensively and they were unselfish. People don't realize how hard that is to do because Spolster did it in his first two years. And when you really knew, what really opened my eyes to him, because you know what? I worked with him as an assistant coach on Riley's staff with him as the video coordinator. The video coordinator works with the assistant coaches. <laughs> and we make, we make tapes, we make scouting reports. We knew right away how sharp he was. I knew he was a real good basketball man. All right? And when, uh, the, uh, when you found out what he was like as a head coach, is his first thing that he did, <clears throat> I don't know if you remember this, First year he was a coach, we drafted Michael Beasley with the second pick. Eric Spolster was in the organization, and he had to evaluate what was best for his team. (coughs) Excuse me. And he had to go to Udonis Haslam. Everybody loves Udonis. Udonis was a starter on the championship team in 06. He was a starter in... uh, Seven, eight, nine. Now it's uh, seven, uh, uh, seven, and then you get now it's eight, nine season. I was supposed to have to go to Udonis and say, "Look, it's better for our team if we better for our team if we start Michael Beasley and bring you off the bench." Do you know how difficult that was to do for a guy who was in the organization as a video coordinator, then an assistant coach, and now a head coach, and the first difficult uh, decision he has to make. He has to tell Udonis Haslam that he's coming off the bench. UD didn't like it, but UD has been always been a team player. He had respect for Eric Spolster because of the way he worked, and he did it. And Michael Beasley started, and UD came off the bench. And then when we got the three All-Stars, people think it's easy to win. Somebody said, well, who couldn't win with LeBron? Well, my question to them would be, what did LeBron win before he came to Miami? Seven years in, in, in uh, Cleveland, he took a, a, a not too good a team to the finals. He did that, but he didn't win a championship. So don't tell me because you have LeBron, it's automatic you're going to win a championship. That's that you know that you don't know what you're talking about. 
happened. And so Eric Spolster, they started out nine and eight, if you remember. And then what happened? Everybody, people, all these pseudo experts talking about they're going to replace Spolster and this and that. And then they won the next 21 out of 22 games and they were on their way. And so there's another great story there. Um, when the Heat were in, the, the, for the first year that they had the three All-Stars, they lost to Dallas. We know that. The second, in the second year that LeBron was here, after losing to Dallas the year before in the finals, the Heat now are playing Boston with uh, three or four Hall of Famers. You know, Ray Allen was on that team um, before he came to the Heat. And so, remember in that in those playoffs, in the semifinals, in the first game, Chris Bosh um, uh, messed up. He, he had problems with um, muscle muscles in his uh, rib cage. He, he he pulled some muscles in his rib cage, and he couldn't play the rest of the Indiana series. He had like eighteen points at halftime, and then he couldn't play anymore the whole series. First game after the first game. So Eric supposed to had to adjust a little bit, and now they had to do something a little different because Chris Bosh was a big part of, of what we were doing. So we beat Indiana without Bosh. Now we got to play Boston, and we and we beat Boston the first two games in Miami. We go to Boston and they wipe us out. Now it's a tight series. Now we come back to Miami for Game Five. This is the 2012 Finals, okay, and uh, Eastern Finals, and. Chris Bosch now is ready to play. They feel he's ready to play. So he plays four or five minutes in the first half, first quarter, uh, second quarter. He plays five or six minutes in the, in the third quarter. The Heat are playing well. They're up. They go into the fourth quarter. The Heat are winning. When it was time to put Chris Bosch back into the game, we were winning. Things were going well. There was no reason to do it. But as time went on in the fourth quarter, Boston then took control of the game. Chris Bosch never got back in the game. And the reason why Eric Spolster didn't put him back in the game is because he's coming off that rehab of that, that pulled muscle in his rib cage, okay, which was a serious injury. If he had put him back in that game, having sat so much, he might have re-pulled that muscle. It wasn't worth gambling on. You couldn't do it. So you could see the resolve and the, and the determination of Eric uh, Spolstra that he's not going to give in to the temptation of trying to win the game in front of all these millions of people watching for the sake of, of Chris Bosch's health. And so he doesn't put him back in and we lose. Now we got to go to Boston for game six where we have a hard time winning at that time. We had a hard time winning in Boston. And so we didn't do the game. We don't do the games in the, in the finals. It was only a one game in the, in the finals of the East. We so we didn't go to the game. I texted Eric Spolstra. They were on their way on the plane going to Boston. And I said, good luck tomorrow. And Eric Spolster texted me back and said, there's no way we're losing tomorrow. There's no way we are losing tomorrow. And if you recall, that's the game where LeBron had the eyes. Okay, you remember that, that picture of him with his eyes? Yeah. He had 45 points, 15 rebounds, and five assists. And we won by 16, 17 points. And then we come back and we win game seven in Miami. Chris Bosch gets three threes. We win the Eastern Conference Championship. And then we go on and play um, OKC, you know, with Duran, Westbrook, and Harden. And they beat us the first game and then we sweep them the next four. 
and they win the championship. If Eric Spolster would have put Bosch back in the game in game five in Miami, he would have run the risk of Bosch not being able to play the rest of the playoffs. That's Eric Spolster won that championship. And so that's why I said for years he's on the fast track to the Basketball Hall of Fame. And Stan Van Gundy just said it recently when they played his team. When they played New Orleans, he said in his interview that Eric's going to be in the Basketball Hall of Fame. I've been saying that for years. He will be there. And it's great to see how he has grown as a coach. He's really a brilliant coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Then, um, Flash, you have a question you want to ask? Yeah, Coach, we've talked about all these great players that the Heat have had. And we've had, we as fans, have been so lucky to have franchise-altering players come, come to Miami via the draft, via trade, or via free agency. Now, you have uh, Alonzo Mourning, of course, Dwayne Wade via the draft, Shaquille O'Neal, LeBron James, Chris Bosh, go on and on. But now comes last year when we acquired Jimmy Butler in free agency through a sign-in trade. And ever since then, it feels like the Heat has flipped the switch because of Jimmy Butler. What does Jimmy bring to this Heat team? Well, you know, Eric, uh, um, um, Ed Pickney was on that team that won 61 games. I was assistant coach. I coached against Ed Pickney in high school, and he was a high school player. And I was at Mount Vernon. He was at Stevenson High School. I coached against him. So I know him a long time. I've known him since he was 17, 18 years old. And then um, he went on to become an assistant coach in different teams after he left Miami. He even, he even did radio and TV for a year for the Heat with Eric. He was on TV with Eric for a year before Mike Fratello came. Um, he was in Minnesota when, when Jimmy Butler was there. And we talked now and then. I just talked to him the other day. We, we talked about every couple of months. He, and uh, we were talking when, when Jimmy Butler was in Minnesota. And somehow Jimmy Butler's name came up. And he said to me, let me tell you something. He's the real deal. Don't believe anything you read in the paper. Don't believe anything that the media is telling you. I'm telling you, I see him every day. He is the real deal. All he wants to do is win. He plays both ends of the floor. He practices like that. Sometimes he may get on players because they're, they're not working as hard. And so maybe that's what the media is harping on. Okay. But he said, but I'm telling you, he's the real deal. And then, you know, I think he played a little bit with Dwayne Wade in Chicago, right? I think when, she, when Dwayne played that half a year, whatever it was, that year in Chicago, Jimmy Butler was on that team. And yeah. I think Dwayne Wade got in his ear about how he would fit in perfectly in the Heat culture. And then eventually when he was in Philadelphia, now here it is. Think about this. Philadelphia loses on a fluke shot, right, the year before. They could have gone maybe to the NBA Finals. They had the team that could have gone to the Finals out of the East. Jimmy Butler, instead of going staying with them, he wants to come to Miami. And people thought he was crazy. People thought that, hey, what are you doing? You, you know, what's going on here? But he understood that this is where he belonged. That he, this is the culture he wanted to be in. And it was a happy marriage. So it was up to Pat Riley and Andy Ellisberg you know, another unsung hero among the Heat is the cap expert, cap guru, another Heat original like myself, been there since the beginning. He, they, two of them figured out how to make the trade, the three-way trade to get Jimmy Butler here. 
and it worked. Look, look at how, look how perfect it's been. And I thought Eric Spolster had one of the great lines last year. If you recall, in Game Five, the Heat down three-one. Jimmy Butler was taking over Game Five with Dragic out, and it was it was like a minute left, and he got fouled, and he was leaning over that little barrier, that little uh, thing on, on the baseline. And after the game, they showed the picture of that, and they asked Eric Spolster about it. He goes, "That's the image of a champion before he's a champion." That was Jimmy Butler. And, you know, you, you still feel what would have happened in that series had Bam and, uh, and Dragic not got injured. You know, they weren't, they weren't available for games five and six. I know game six. And so Jimmy Butler is the real deal. And when he came to Miami, he was, the first thing he did was he went to the gym at 3.30, 4.30 in the morning. And he called up the hero and said, you coming? If you're a hero, you're going to say no. <laughs> All right. And so right there, he's showing his leadership and he's showing that, hey, this is what champions do. This is what real good, tough, hard-nosed basketball players do. This is how you prepare to be a real good player. And so he's had a great influence on the team. And it seems as he goes, so goes the Heat. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. That's what I think. I usually I say it as a joke, but it's kind of true. As long as we, I feel like as long as we have Jimmy, we have a chance, and that's that's what I love about him. I mean, you got other important ingredients like like Bam, and you got Dragic, and you got the shooting of Robinson, and all those different things. But when it comes right down to it, the one guy that you want in the game, because then, as you said, you feel like you always have a chance. You see how he takes over the game when he has to. And he's got some Dwayne Wade in him, too. I've said this off the air. You know, I'm not on the air anymore, and I say this to friends. He's got some Dwayne Wade in him because we remember Dwayne Wade was not a three-point shooter. Almost his whole career. He got better at the end of his career, but he wasn't a three-point shooter, per se. Not like players today. But yet, we were in Charlotte, down three to two, okay, in the, in the, in the, in the uh, playoffs. And what does he do? He makes three threes in the fourth quarter to beat Charlotte, and then we beat him in Miami. He willed his team to win, but he willed himself into making those shots. He willed himself into doing what he had to do to make his team win. Jimmy Butler has those same qualities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, Coach, I've actually made this comparison before. I wanted to know your thoughts. So the Heat right now is currently constructed – just remind me of, of what a championship team looks like. Obviously, just talking about Jimmy, we have, you know, that guy that can take over on both sides of the ball. Um, we got an incredible, you know, incredible ball handling center that does it all. And also guys like Dragic off the bench, um, just providing scoring. I, I've, I've compared this team to that, that dynasty Spurs team. Obviously, you know, where Tim, Tim and, and Bam would be, you know, comparables there. And then for me, Dragic and Manu, very similar roles there. Um, and obviously, you know, having a guy like Jimmy is different than Tony Parker, but just that guy that can take over. So do you, do you think that's a fair comparison that this team reminds you of that Spurs, that Spurs dynasty? Um, what someone, what a purist would say, a basketball purist would say, those guys won like four NBA championships together. And so while, while it may remind you of them a little bit, until they win a championship, there really is no comparison. Okay, so um, we have to wait and see what this team accomplishes. 
if they if they go on to win a championship this year with that group, now you can make that. Then you have more uh, information. You have more of a, an analysis with those guys because they did take it to another level, and that other level was NBA championships. So we'll put that on hold for now. Mm-hmm. So then, Angeline, do you have any questions you want to ask? Yes, who's your, I mean, I don't know if you can really answer this because it's like, I don't know, because most people can't pick a favorite, but from this season's Heat roster, who's your favorite and like who's been performing the best in your opinion? Well, I'll tell you a story. Last year, um, our, when we have our Heat camps over the summer, what usually happens is any new guys that come to the Heat, any draft picks, we usually get them first in the public. They're the, for their first public appearance usually at camp. Because uh, Michael Lissack, the one uh, uh, an assistant PR director with the Heat, does a great job of getting us one Heat player every week. And they come to camp, they, they give autographs, they take pictures. And um, when when um, when we the year that that summer we got Hero and we got none. Okay, they came to camp, and none comes to camp. He's a kid from Chicago, Kendrick Nunn. And we bonded right away because he's from a very good high school in Chicago, Simeon High School, which I know I know very well. My high school, Mount Vernon High School, is well known in, in, in high school basketball. And so is Simeon. And so we bonded. I told him about the players like Jabari Parker and Derek Rose are from Simeon High School. We talked a little bit. And then I said to him, I said, um, you know, I'm from a pretty good high school myself. He goes, what, Mount Vernon? He goes, I know about Mount Vernon. Those, those guys that play AAU ball know about the same guys. So we, we bonded. And then I went on a radio show. I went up to Palm Beach and watched them practice twice. We got to do that. And I went on a radio show, and they asked me about Hero. And I told them about Hero, and I said, let me tell you something. This was, this was before, right, right as the rookie year was starting for none. And I said, my sleeper on that team is Kendrick Nunn. People are going to be surprised how good he is. And then look what happened. You know, he had the first 40-point game in the exhibition season for the Heat in 32 years, right? And then he went on and was second in the balloting for Rookie of the Year, had a great year. And so I get a real pleasure out of watching Kendrick Nunn play because he's playing with a chip on his shoulder. All these people, he never got drafted. And all these people got drafted ahead of him. He Every time he plays against them, he wants to go at them. Okay, so I thought, I'm really enjoying the fact that he now has gotten over the sickness and he's, he's just he's just playing great for them. We know Hero is a guy that that um, wants to take and make the the big shot. He's capable of doing that. Um, the guy, the other guy, the, the guy I'm, I'm impressed with that I didn't know anything about is Precious uh, Shula. He really plays well. He makes things happen. He reminds you of Bam the first year. He uh, surely doesn't have a lot of offensive skills right now, but he will. He gets most of what he gets on hustle and determination and out out uh, hustling somebody to a rebound and a putback and running the floor and those types of things. He's nonstop. He never stops. He reminds me of Udonis when Udonis first came in the league. Udonis wasn't a very good offensive player when he first came to the Heat, and he got better with work, um, people like that. And so Shula has been very impressive. And so those are the guys that I look at 
that you know you, you love the the great all-around play of Iguodala. He does all these subtle things. His hands are always in the right place at the right time, stealing the ball and being smart. Steve Kerr said maybe the smartest player he's ever been around in the NBA. And he played with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, you know, Kerr. So uh, I'm enjoying this team. I'm enjoying the way the coaches are coaching them. Um, I'm, I'm glad we can get, you know, I've been, I've been going to all the home games. I enjoy watching them play and, and seeing them succeed. I'm looking forward to seeing them uh, beat Orlando tonight. Mm-hmm. So then, um, Flash, um, Jake, any more questions? Uh, I'm, I think I'm pretty good. <laughs> yeah, Coach, same here. Um, you, you pretty much went through all the questions I had. So thank you okay. so much for kind of going, you know, in depth into your career and heat ball. It's been, you know, it's been a pleasure getting, you know, getting to speak with you. It's been real a lot of fun, and I really enjoy talking to people who are passionate about the Heat. You guys, all of you, asked very good questions today, and um, I enjoy that. You gave us very and, good uh, answers. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. And it's always great for me to reminisce in different ways, and you guys made me think about different things that I, you know, that that I would normally expect those type of questions to come up. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it, and good luck with your interview with Eric on Saturday. Thank you. And uh, just before we wrap it up, you know, um, you've had such a great career and it's still going on. You know, I think everyone wants to know um, what's in the future for the coach Fiorentino. Well, I'm going I'm to be the ambassador and hopefully we're going to get back in the classroom come September where we can really promote this and get after the uh, anti-bullying campaign. Because I think we can make a big dent in what's going on with with, with in society. They need that now. Um, we're going to step up the junior heat program. Maybe do more clinics. We're going to have probably have the camps again. And if anybody's interested, I have a website that uh, I've got forty Tony's tips in there. I've got a page on anti-bullying. Um, I got something about the junior heat. I got pictures galore. You're going to love the pictures in there. There's a lot of heat pictures in there. Different players, Pat Riley, different a lot of different things. Uh, and the name of the the, the uh, website is notjustbasketball.com. All one word, notjustbasketball.com. And so uh, I spent a lot of time. It got me through the uh, the pandemic because I spent a lot of time getting it done. And if there's, as I mentioned, there's 40 tips in there. There's quotes. There's uh, anybody that wants to improve different aspects of their game. There's, there's, there's instruction in there. Um, I even have a video when you, if you click on it, when you go on it, it's an introductory video. I did it in front of the picture of Chris Bosch getting that rebound against San Antonio when he was just about to pass the ball out to Ray Allen in that right corner to tie game six in 2013. That's a big picture that's up in the, uh, championship alley in the arena. So I've got that on my website. And so if, if anybody's interested, I've got a, I also have a, uh, I'm on Twitter at Tony Heat 3XWC. Tony Heat three times world champions. Tony Heat 3XWC. And so, and then I'm on Facebook too. So any of that, if anybody wants to get, you know, check that out, then uh, you'll have a lot of fun with it. That's great to hear. So without further ado, um, thank you, Mr. Fiorentino, for hopping on today's podcast. 
And thank you to all of those for listening. And we'll see you guys next time with a brand new episode of the Heat vs. the World podcast. Thank you for listening to the Heat vs. the World podcast. And we'll see you next time with a brand new episode.